Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Fair. Zoe, do you think it's fair to call Elon Musk the person of the year in tech and media? And and if so, is it for all the wrong reasons? Absolutely. I think he was the main character of the internet. Um, I think that was arguably his goal in buying Twitter in the first place. And he made it so at every twist and turn this entire year. That is Zoe Schiffer. She's the managing editor of Platformer and author of the forthcoming book, Extremely Hardcore, Inside Elon Musk's Twitter. And I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. This week on our final episode of the year, we're going inside the disinformation machine and looking at a man who who really did shape 2023 in many ways and many times for the worse. Elon Musk bought Twitter toward the end of 2022, and he spent most of this year chasing staff and users and advertisers away. His ownership has changed Twitter, now called X, in even more ways than I could have imagined. But I'm not the expert here. Zoe is. Zoe, you've been studying this. You're about to come out with a book on the subject. What was Musk's stated reason for taking over Twitter? And what has the site become? What is it now in a couple of sentences? Yeah, I mean, so from the beginning, he said that the reason that he was buying Twitter was that he wanted to restore free speech to the global town square. I think we've seen in the years since that his definition of free speech is very different from ours. And it basically means his speech and speech that he aligns with. (laughs) I think in terms of what has Twitter become, we don't need to look further than Parler shutting down over the summer. Parler, in case you don't know, is a free speech alternative to Twitter. Some would say a hate speech filled platform. And in its statement about why it said that there was no reason that it needed to exist anymore. And unsaid in that statement was the fact that Twitter had really become parlor at that point. It had stripped away so many of the content moderation policies that protected vulnerable users. And I think Elon Musk's stated definition of free speech is about allowing the maximum amount of 
speech on the site. And what he's never understood is that when you allow everyone to say whatever they want, you actually limit the free speech of most people Mm. because free speech doesn't mean that you can harass someone or use hate speech. What we want it to mean and what we've taken it to mean in the modern age of social networks is that most people can speak and they will be protected from violence on the internet. Mm. Let's look at this year through the Musk prism, you know, in all the ways, in the, through Tesla and Starlink, but focusing on X because the downward trajectory has been shocking and, and as, a, as a user, disappointing. Take us back to January, beginning of this year. Musk had just laid off lots of people from Twitter right before the holidays. He had started to clean house and the site, it seemed like it couldn't really handle the, the pressure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, If in January 2023, you didn't know what this year was largely going to look like, I would argue you weren't really paying attention because he had already laid off more than half the company. He had started to shut down a data center in Sacramento that was absolutely important for Twitter's stability. He had made all of these decisions on a whim. And employees were blowing the whistle saying this man is not, you know, he's not listening to us. He's not trying to understand how this platform works and he's trying to reshape it in his own image. So two important things that happened in January and February of 23. The first one is that Twitter becomes noticeably more glitchy than it had ever been in recent memory. This was the result of the data center shutdown in Sacramento, which employees had warned him repeatedly was going to cause major glitchiness on the site. Interesting. So let me ask you more about that, because when when he first laid off so many staffers, there was this narrative in Silicon Valley that uh, Musk is proving that you can run these companies with a fraction of the staff and it doesn't make a difference. You don't need all those various departments at Twitter. But actually, you're saying that the staffing reduction did have really you could feel it on the service because it got worse. Absolutely. And look, I'm not going to lie to you. Like Twitter needed to lay off a sizable portion of its staff, which is why Parag Agarwal in January 22 was planning for 16% layoffs by April. Of course, that didn't happen because the day they were supposed to conduct them, Elon Musk said he was taking the company private. So yes, people needed to be laid off. But the way that the layoffs were done, which was utterly haphazard, chaotic, and rushed meant that they laid off core infrastructure teams that were charged with keeping Twitter stable. They laid off a ton of people who were in charge of FTC compliance. And this ended up being a very big deal. The FTC investigation is ongoing, but I would be very surprised if its outcome is favorable towards Elon Musk's company. And he used the layoffs as a referendum on the excesses of Silicon Valley. And That always might have happened, but he gave that movement of economic austerity an ideology. And so suddenly it wasn't just that people were getting laid off. They were getting laid off with very little notice. They were getting laid off no matter how good an engineer they were. And that had serious ramifications for the platform. Just tell me a little more about that FTC investigation. Why does that matter to him? So Twitter has been operating under an FTC consent order since 2011. So in 2022, the FTC found that Twitter had violated that order and charged it $150 million in a settlement negotiation. So as part of that settlement, Twitter had to agree to a number of basically checks and balances to make sure that no feature was rolled out that could compromise user safety. And so 
basically this amounts to like a lot of paperwork before they say we're going to launch the edit button. They have to do all of these privacy reviews and say, how is this going to impact user privacy? Are we alerting people? Have they agreed to this? All of that stuff. Mm. From Elon Musk's perspective, this is just basically like slowing him down. And when he comes in, one of the things that he wants to do right off the bat is say like, old Twitter, so slow, all talk, no action. This new era of the Elon Musk era is going to be very fast. We're going to make decisions. We're going to ship stuff. And so what you saw is that they were throwing stuff out the door and you had, you know, the privacy team raising their hands and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Have we done a privacy review? You know, Twitter blue is a key example. They rushed that out the door. And we now know due to the ongoing FTC investigation that they didn't conduct a thorough privacy review. That's a huge problem for the FTC. Mm. Now, of course, Musk's allies, right wing media, they say the Biden administration's targeting Musk, coming after him. You know, just to be clear, this is a bunch of bureaucrats in the FTC. There's no reason that this is like the Biden White House intimidating Elon Musk, but that's on the table there. So throughout the year, Musk changes the shape and the feel of Twitter. By the way, a site where I met my wife. I'll love Twitter forever. I can't help myself. That's why I still call it Twitter, not X. But you met your wife on Twitter? I did. I did. I, I was scrolling through my feed one morning. There she was. Uh, I slid into her DMs. The, the rest is history. So I don't want to give up on this platform. But, but here's what has made it really hard for me this year, personally. It's the blue checkmark thing. It's that Verified has gone from meaning something about journalism and media and at least a layer or veneer of credibility to meaning the literal opposite, right? And this is because he made blue checkmark something you can buy, right? Yeah. So taking this back to shortly after the acquisition, one of the first major projects he launches is the revamp of Twitter Blue. And he's tying verification for the first time ever to paying for a subscription. You know, this is part of his overall ethos that he doesn't want to be tied down by advertisers because as much as he likes to talk about free speech, ultimately, If you own a social platform that's dependent on advertising, you do not get to be a free speech absolutist because ultimately advertisers get to decide what they want to advertise next to. And all advertisers want is stability. They want to pay money and see their ad next to a benign tweet from LeBron James. They don't want to see it next to some crazy hate speech from, for example, Alex Jones or someone. Alex Jones, the hate monger, recently allowed back on the platform. But but that's an example of how this has been turned upside down. Elon Musk wants people to believe that the real media is fake and cannot be trusted, that real news sources cannot be relied on, and that you should rely on amateurs and randos and weirdos on X instead. And so it, it, this idea of paying for verification plays into that. You know, trust the people who have paid me $8. And then, by the way, every almost every time I do that, every time I, I go to the app now, looking for reliable information. It is the blue check marks who are lying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting because way back when the feature first launched, the trust and safety team at Twitter sent Elon a seven-page document outlining all of the things that were about to go wrong if they launched paid verification. And you look back on that document now and it reads like a prophecy. I mean, when I tell you it has happened exactly like that. It truly, truly has. So yeah, he he launches the feature and then he basically subscriptions to Twitter Blue were utterly anemic, absolutely embarrassing. He has to roll back the feature. Then the relaunch is delayed multiple times because of various things. And finally, it relaunches and it's just an embarrassment. And so finally, on April 20th, he says, that's it. 
on this day, we are going to strip away the blue check mark from people who do not pay. And the idea behind this is that the blue check mark is so valued that if he starts taking it away, all of us journalists will come crawling back and we'll say, okay, we'll pay $8. Instead, what happens overnight is exactly what you're alluding to. The meaning of a blue check mark goes from being this person is the real deal to this person believes and endorses Elon Musk. Right. They're on Team Musk. To the point where you saw, I remember one journalist at NPR had actually subscribed to Twitter Blue and he was tweeting, Elon Musk, please take away my blue check. I just canceled my subscription. I don't want this anymore because it was like so blatant and embarrassing if you still had it all of a sudden. No, I still do subscribe and I do pay <laughs> for a blue check mark. And we'll talk about that later. But let me quote from a ProPublica piece uh, that came out earlier this month. It found that accounts with blue checks, once a sign of authenticity, are disseminating debunked claims and getting more followers. Like There's a key connection there, right, which is the incentive structure of this health site now, which is when you make stuff up, when you spread erroneous information, when you put out craziness on the platform, you benefit, you get paid, right? He's paying people to do it. He's sharing in the ad revenue. Exactly. He's been trying to make X, formerly called Twitter, a more creator-friendly platform. And that's actually like kind of a good idea. Like Twitter always had a bizarre relationship with creators where it never really launched much in the form of creator tools. There wasn't a lot of opportunities to monetize. So again, not a terrible idea, but how it's played out is that if you pay $8 a month, you get the blue check, your tweets are more likely to be recommended. And then if they go viral, you can share in ad revenue. And so you get paid. And what that ends up meaning is exactly what you said. People are incentivized to say the most bombastic things possible. And it doesn't really matter if they're right and wrong. Yeah, on the day we're taping this, the stock market is up and the trending hashtag on X is, quote, stock market crash. Like, it's just this site is now so far removed from reality. And of course, every individual's experience is different. But I have multiple burner accounts just to check things out, just to see what it's like for normal users. I see that this site is just so far from reality. Now, how does that clash, Zoe? How does that come up against reality in the form of the Israel-Hamas war? Because there have been news events this year where X has been part of the problem, where disinformation has been a big part of the problem. Yeah. So Israel-Hamas war was really this test case for X because and I'm going to call it Twitter just for like ease of, of understanding, but Same. for Twitter's entire history, the moments that it has absolutely thrived and stood apart from every other social platform were moments of global conflict and real-time events. You would have the event playing out in real time, and then you would have a simultaneous event playing out on Twitter as people reacted to what was happening. And so as soon as the violence starts, as Hamas attacks Israel, we see that Twitter is absolutely flooded with disinformation and misinformation. And a lot of it is coming from blue check accounts. So immediately in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, not only is this a problem because number one, researchers can't study what's happening and understand, is this a foreign adversary that's trying to sow confusion? Like what exactly is going on here? Number two, he'd recently taken away like headlines from news articles. It was like really hard to even tell what was actual news and what was just like straight blue check disinformation. Number three, and this was the most critical, blue checks could get paid for tweets that went viral. And so in my mind, I'm thinking people are going to get money for spreading disinformation about the violence. 
A few days later, he did actually correct this and say that if a tweet had a community note attached, it wouldn't be able to share in ad revenue. But to be honest, by then, it was a little bit too little, too late. And all the while, we are learning what's happening in Musk's head through his ex-feed. And often what's happening is pretty ugly. Here's the Reuters headline from last month. Musk visits Israel after criticism for endorsing anti-Semitic post. Of course, there was an advertiser scandal as a result as well. Zoe, let's take a quick break and then talk about Musk as a person. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Selter, speaking with Zoe Schiffer, managing editor of Platformer. So, Zoe, there's this moment in November where Musk flies across the country, comes to New York, goes to the Deal Book Conference, sits on stage with my friend Andrew Ross Sorkin, consents to a long, in-depth interview, and then says this. I hope they stop. You hope? Uh, Don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. But go f*** yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Don't about- advertise. Musk referring to Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, who had just appeared on stage. Disney, lots of other companies have backed away from X. And so we know from reporting by Bloomberg and other outlets that the the advertiser decline, the, the, the drop is so precipitous. This is actually an impact to the bottom line of Twitter, to X, to the thing Musk owns. He is destroying the value of the thing he owns. Yeah, I mean, since the acquisition closed, there have kind of been two schools of thought about this. Like, is he just shooting from the hip or is this part of some like master plan? And I think the deal book conference really showed that this man is shooting from the hip. And that might have served him well in the past. He said that he has a really high risk tolerance. He likes taking risks. But I think we can say now for certain that it's definitely not serving him well as the owner of Twitter. He said on a podcast earlier in the year that his mind is a storm. I don't think most people would want to be me. Have you thought much about that and what he means by that, about his mind being a storm? Yeah, I mean, I try not to 
analyze him too much because I've never talked to him. I don't know him as a person. Well, he sent you an emoji, didn't he? <laughs> he did send me an emoji, famously. Um, Why? What was the emoji about? I asked him repeatedly if he would participate in the book. And the only time he responded was to add the crying, laughing emoji onto one of my texts. So I am best friends with Elon Musk. It's better than me and Tucker Carlson. He didn't even bother to send me an emoji when I was working yeah. on my book about him. But but you're saying you're trying not to get in his head, right? That's what you're you're saying. You don't you're not trying to get in his head. Yeah, but I have spent a ton of time talking to people who've worked with him very closely. And my takeaway from that is that he seems like a pretty unhappy person. And I would say that happiness isn't actually a priority for him. He values other things and kind of peace and personal well-being don't seem high on his list. And that's fine, except that he's one of the most powerful men in the entire world. And so when he is unwell, we are all experiencing the ramifications of that. Tell us about some examples that get to his wellness or lack thereof. What posts, what messages, what memes does he share that speak to that? Yeah, you know, it really started to ramp up in 2022. I think there was like a retweeted Hitler meme. There were some conspiracy theories. But the thing that has stood out to me the most personally is just the misogyny. There have been a notable number of misogynistic memes and kind of like sex and dick jokes. And it just feels like a very uncomfortable atmosphere as a woman. Mm. But it also just speaks to a mental state that is both juvenile and deeply unhappy in my mind. When I think about all the times he replies to random people and says, this is concerning, very concerning, right? To Tucker Carlson and others. He's concerned. He's concerned. He's he's always reacting to this, this nonsense, this noise, these memes and lies as if they are true. And it's shocking because we are raised in a society to believe that these billionaires, the billionaire class, must know more than the rest of us, must be smarter, wiser, and, and savvier than the rest of us. And yet, from what we learn from his X feed, where we see the dick jokes and the the, the, the stupidity, as well as the, the straight up disinformation and anti-Semitism, it really calls into question, you know, whether he has those critical thinking skills. And yet, you know, the response from his fans, he's built Tesla, he's built Starlink, he's built SpaceX, he must be brilliant. And look, there are many different types of intelligence. Like I haven't been on the supply line with him at Tesla or SpaceX. Like maybe he's a incredible engineer in terms of hardware in those areas. But I think in any area where it has to do with human emotion and relationship, you need to come in with a little bit of humility and curiosity. And those are qualities that Elon really seems to lack. And I'll tell you one other thing. So often when we question his intelligence, it, at least in terms of Twitter, people do hang on this. Well, what about Tesla? What about all of these other things he's done? But I think there is a notable difference in Elon today than the Elon that was building Tesla. And here is why. Oh, okay. He doesn't have a single person around him who will tell him the truth from what I can tell. And I think that mm. that wasn't always the case, but I think his circle has shrunk smaller and smaller and it's become more and more yes men as time has gone on. When you talk to sources inside Twitter and X for your book, what stood out to you about what they shared about Musk and working for Musk and what he was like behind the scenes? Was he erratic and in, in private as he is in public? 
He could be erratic, but I think almost everyone I talked to, and this included people who really, really like Elon Musk and people who really, really dislike him, everyone will say that he's much more reasonable face-to-face than the character he plays on Twitter. He can still turn on a dime. He can get very irrational and angry, but he's a much more normal human in the room. I think, you know, there were little anecdotes that people repeat that have stuck in my head. Like he tells the same joke again and again. He'll kind of repeat himself and he really wants people to like laugh at his jokes in the room. Um, That also (laughs) seemed like, again, the signs of someone who doesn't have someone around him who will be like, hey, shut up, man. Or like, hey, you already told that one. Um, But yeah, again, I think there is a level of character play that he brings to his persona online. And how would you describe his politics now? I mean, this is something that's been widely discussed, and it's why I think of him as a defining person of 2023, is his politics are affecting X, and X affects the wider public dialogue. How would you describe where he is politically? I mean, his defining ideology is rage against the woke mind virus. And I really think that feeling dictates so many of his decisions. What is the woke mind virus? The definition is very unclear to me, but it's like everything from people who try and limit what I would call hate speech on the internet to like offices that have too many perks. So it's everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's whatever you want it to be for purposes of being opposed to something or to be contrarian. Absolutely. But in his mind, it's very related to liberalism, to the left, to the Democratic Party. And I think he has very much positioned himself in opposition to those things. And he said at Dealbook he would not vote for Biden. He says that doesn't mean he'll vote for Trump, but he will not vote for Biden. There's a right-wing radicalization component to this that I think we have to acknowledge, that when he's replying to those people like Carlson, saying very concerning, he is soaking in a very specific type of online swamp. <laughs> and, and you said at the beginning of this, he's like the main character of the internet. Well, he's the main character of part of the internet, maybe not all of it, especially after Mark Zuckerberg launched Threads in July. So let's talk about that part of the conversation. And whatever happened to the cage match? (laughs) Oh my God. That was never going to happen, unfortunately, for all of us who wanted to fly to Rome and see it in person. But Musk did challenge Zuckerberg to a cage match and Zuck did accept. He did accept. Zuckerberg was all in. That's that's not a lie at all. It's just that Elon like lifting a weight while he was in the middle of a meeting at the office in San Francisco was like not going to be adequate training. against Mark Zuckerberg, who like takes the sport <laughs> extremely seriously. But yeah, in in early July, Elon Musk makes this completely unprecedented decision to impose rate limiting on Twitter. At that point, it was still called Twitter. And it's not a normal rate limit. So I don't want to get too technical here, but you know, if you try a password too many times, you'll get an error message that says like, try back again later. That's like a typical rate limit because the benefit to you is that your like account can't be hacked and the loss to like most users isn't that high because people aren't forgetting their passwords all the time. But he imposed an API limit. So we couldn't do anything. Like oh, if you that's scrolled, right. I forgot about this. Yes. I, it, it broke the service. <laughs> it completely broke the service. And it was, um, it was different depending on whether you paid for Twitter blue or not. So if you paid for Twitter blue, you could like scroll for, I don't know, like 15 minutes, let's say, and then you would see a rate limit that wouldn't let you scroll anymore. So you literally couldn't see ads at that point. Like think about how backwards that is for an ad dependent business. But if you weren't subscribing to Twitter blue, I mean, you could barely see any tweets. You would scroll for a second. All of a sudden you would see this rate limit. You couldn't do anymore. 
So this presents the perfect opportunity for Mark Zuckerberg and Adam Osari, who runs Instagram, to launch threads. And they had been at this decision point where they were thinking, do we want to launch simultaneously in the European Union and the United States? Obviously, that would be better for users. But if we do that, then we have to wait a bunch of time because the European Union has just rolled out all of these regulations. It's going to be a more difficult launch, yada, yada. But as soon as the rate limiting fiasco starts to happen and Twitter down is trending and people are so, so upset. And we even see some of Elon Musk's most ardent supporters turning against him at this point. Mark Zuckerberg knows that this is the critical moment. And so they decide to launch threads right after and almost immediately it hits 100 million downloads. So all of a sudden there's a service that acts a lot like Twitter and it's not like Mastodon. What, what, I know there's all these others that, that have been invented and attempted, but I'm sorry, Meta does have the ability to get in front of 100 million people very quickly and it worked. So is that the new internet now? Is, is this how it's going to be from now on, Zoe? Just this fractured internet where, you know, the right wing fever swamp will be X and I don't know, progressives or members of the media will be over on threads. Yeah, I I think the future of social networking is going to be, it's what they call federated, but it basically means that we're going to have a lot uh, more social media sites. And I really think that that will be net positive. It'll make content moderation easier. It'll make regulation a little bit easier. You know, I think the loss is that the magic juice that Twitter had was that it really felt like it captured the kind of beating heart of the internet day in and day out. And I don't know if we're going to recapture that ever again, because it's hard to get when you're looking at a lot of different sites. That said, I'm personally all in on threads and I've completely stopped posting on Twitter and I don't miss it. Well, you and I disagree about this. So let's take a break (laughs) and, and have that debate in just a minute. And if you are watching this video... Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. We're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter, speaking with Zoe Schiffer. We're surveying the state of the social web, talking about Elon Musk, and looking ahead toward 2024. Uh, because, uh, Zoe, as we were saying before the break, uh, Musk has dramatically changed X. Many people have fled to sites like Threads as alternatives. Uh, I know that you you are now only on Threads. So you, your colleague Casey Newton at Platformer, uh, my old colleague Oliver Darcy at CNN, uh, they've all been you know pushing, pushing me to give up on Twitter, to stop posting on X. What is the argument for why someone should stop posting on X? 
I mean, the more that you continue to post on X and the more that you legitimize this platform that in my mind warrants no legitimacy at this point. And and Brian, I'll be honest with you, like it took me a very long time to get to this point because I work for an independent media organization. I'm a complete outsider in media. Like I did not come to this through connections. I had to like really fight my way. And it was very hard. And I have over a hundred thousand followers on X and I have about 20,000 on threads. So it was really, really hard for me to give up. And it feels like a huge loss, but there have just been so many moments over this past year where Elon Musk has promoted ideas and people who I think are very harmful and very dangerous for this world. And I think that you doing what amounts to unpaid labor for that platform is really continuing to support his mission and his campaign. And I think that that is a problem. It's actually worse than unpaid because he throws me a nickel. Right. So I'm in that program where, you know, every few weeks you get, you know, a tiny little sliver of the ad revenue. And so when I get a message like you've made $40 from X, I'm thinking to myself, like, that's actually insulting. Like, it's actually worse. Like, I'd rather not get any any money at all. So I guess I should opt out of the program. So why are you still on there? Well, I use the excuse about meeting my wife and not wanting to give up on the platform. I do care about the audience that I built up on there, even though I know 90% of the accounts are bots or, or dormant or inactive. I would like to think that by being on there, maybe I'm helping a little bit, tiny, tiny little bit to push back on the noise and nonsense that's across the platform. But you're going to say that's crazy. I just, I don't think it's morally defensible at this point. And again, like I so hesitate to push a viewpoint on this because I I do kind of come from the journalistic thought that like we shouldn't be advocates of anything. But I just think as journalists, we have a responsibility to the truth. And I think purely from a misinformation and disinformation standpoint, it is so dangerous to be participating in that atmosphere and to be subjecting yourself to an environment where people are constantly questioning the news and the media and fact-checking. And I think the more that you try and wade into that conversation, the more that you legitimize it. But if that is happening in the outside wider world, shouldn't we be engaging? Shouldn't we be at least hearing and observing it? I mean, listen, I feel like I do sometimes learn from the, the bonkers stuff I see on X. Yeah, absolutely. Anything that you would have said on Parler, I think that you can absolutely say on X and you should use it as you would have Parler. But if you're not about to create an account on Truth Social and start trying to cultivate an audience there, then I really don't see why you're doing it on Mm. X. Speaking of true social, of course, Donald Trump's a social network that is flailing. I think we can also say failing. One of your predictions for 2024, which you wrote on uh, Platformer, is that Trump will start ferociously posting on X once again. It's just an easy prediction, maybe too easy, right? That he's going to be, now that he's been allowed back on X, he's going to use it. My other prediction, which I ended up not going with, was that I thought X was going to go bankrupt this year. But then I started to doubt myself that maybe it would take longer than a year. And so, so I backtracked. Oh, And what about the theory that Musk wants to go bankrupt? Do you buy into that idea that he can then buy the site back for pennies on the dollar? No, that's not even how bankruptcy works. Like he wouldn't own it then. The banks would own it. And maybe then he could like negotiate some deal with the banks. But again, I think that is assigning strategy to what is poor impulse control again and again. Mm. 
Okay, okay, got it. So your prediction, 2024, Trump starts posting ferociously again, and you have a theory about what happens with Musk and and Trump. Play that out for us. Yeah, I mean, I think that Trump will start posting again. Obviously, he's running for re-election, and I think he already has close to 100 million followers on the site. So, like, what's the loss for him? Also, very few content moderation rules, so he can really, like, say whatever he wants at this point. I do think that as he starts to test the waters of what is actually allowed on X at this point, there will come a time where he says something that breaks the rules and Elon Musk will choose to take action on his account again. And that will become a huge friction point because these two men are both egomaniacs. We know that very well. And I think Elon Musk has, interestingly, at a few points since owning this platform, he has chosen to take stronger action, I would say, than we would expect in order to woo back advertisers. So for example, example, right after he bought the company, Kanye West said something that broke the rules. And the head of trust and safety at the time said, based on how many strikes he has, we should suspend his account for a couple of days. And Elon said, no, he's gone. Suspend him indefinitely, basically. And the person was quite surprised, but he understood that, oh, this is a test case for advertisers. And if he takes really strong action now, It'll be a whole news cycle. It'll get a lot of attention, all of these things that Elon Musk craves, and it'll play well with the people who give us money. Uh, That's really interesting. How have you seen X and what's happened on X bleed over into Musk's other businesses? I mean, most importantly, perhaps Tesla. You know, I think Tesla investors, and I want to be clear, like I'm not a Tesla reporter, so there's a lot that I don't know, but... Right after the acquisition, we saw Tesla investors start to get and shareholders start to get upset, basically, that Elon Musk was negatively impacting the stock. The stock was going down and they were like, why is he spending so much time on X? Why is this having a negative impact on us? And and interestingly, they were the ones that were initially pushing him to um, appoint another CEO. So there's always been kind of this interesting relationship between Elon Musk's retail investors on Tesla and like the actual value of Tesla as a company. And it's part of why he has cultivated fandoms so intensely because Tesla's stock has always kind of outpaced the fundamentals of the business. And so it makes Elon Musk somewhat immune to his bad business decisions as long as people are ardent fans of him as a person, they don't necessarily need to feel particularly good about him as a leader of a company, as long as they're willing to continue buying up stock. That's a really interesting point about fandom. And it it drives all of this. Can he keep his fans loyal? Will they stay with him? Will any of these controversies hurt him? Uh, Will all the scrutiny on this man, this, this richest man in the world, will any of it matter if he has his fans? You know, another piece of this is Starlink and how it's being used with the war in Ukraine and how it's available in Gaza, right? And the choices that this one man can make can truly impact world politics and and foreign conflicts. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the reason, you know, I hear a lot of people, especially because like I'm, you know, an Elon Musk reporter saying enough, basically. We we have Elon Musk fatigue. We've heard about him so much this year. But, but what I would say back is like, 
this man has more power than anyone who's not directly in charge of like a nuclear arsenal. And we have to continue to pay attention to what he does. He operates, as Ronan Farrow has documented so well, as an unofficial statesman, as an unofficial diplomat. And I think that that is hugely problematic when his power is going unchecked. And so the press rightfully scrutinizes him. Those stories will spread wide and far. And yet, Musk tells his fans and tells the wider world, don't believe the press. Believe the people that show up in your algorithmic X feed instead. To me, he is a symbol. He embodies what's happening in our media landscape much more broadly. This this splintering that's happening, this divide between not really left and right, but between reality-based and fantasy-based. And I guess that's why I have to think about... Staying on X. I think you do. I guess that's why you're right to invoke a moral argument, Zoe. I think you do. And look, like this antipathy toward the media is not specific to Elon Musk. This is a large campaign in Silicon Valley and even beyond. But when you look at the anchor directed toward the New York Times from the upper echelon of Silicon Valley, it's really about this anger that one New York Times expose could make or break a company. And that's why I think there's been this large movement in Silicon Valley to start to strip away the credibility of the media and to promote their own preferred media sources. Because the idea that you could put all of this money into a startup and then one bad article could tank it was totally intolerable. So none of this is an accident. And in fact, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but I would take it back to Gamergate. You know, there's this idea that these coordinated campaigns that say they are about ethics in journalism, but are really about silencing people. I really think that that was the template and that was the playbook that we're seeing again and again today. And it's so hard to combat because they're saying, well, it's about, we just want to make sure that it's a credible news source. We just want to make sure that these journalists are trustworthy, but it's not really about that at all. All right. You've given me a lot to think about over the holidays, Zoe. You're going to make me reconsider my ex-addiction. So are you going to do it? You want to commit to listeners right now? Let's check back in the new year. (laughs) All right, Brian, I'll let you off the hook. Zoe Schiffer, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Once again, that was Zoe Schiffer, managing editor of Platformer. Her book, Extremely Hardcore, Inside Elon Musk's Twitter, comes out in February. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is Jake Loomis. Mixing is by Bob Mallory. And I'm Brian Stelter. Thank you so much for listening this week and every week. You can find me on Twitter, at least for now, at Brian Stelter, and also on threads with the same handle. You can also email me anytime, bstelter at gmail.com. We'll be back in 2024 with more Inside the Hive. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.